Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined this week for a special Solemnity of St. Joseph episode of the podcast by my podcasting partner and Solemnity Savant, Ed Condon. Ed, how doing? Uh, doing very well, J.D. Thank you. Great. How's the... <laughs> how's the... Uh, how, well, I was going to make a whole thing about, I was going to do this whole bit where I was pretending that you were up in a traffic copter, you know, and you were going to tell us how the evening commute was going to go, and you were going to talk, and I was going to kind of make helicopter sounds in the background, but um, I just couldn't couldn't drive it home. I, I'll be honest with you, I'm probably just not quick enough on my feet to have bought into that. <laughs> I doubt that's true, but I suspect, you know, I mean, the traffic copter is, is kind of a, probably a throwback to another era for many of our... For many of our listeners, as I don't think that the traffic copter is an ordinary feature of um, of life these days, but I, I honestly don't know if it's an ordinary feature of like broad, local broadcast news because most people don't watch broadcast local news these days, and I and I am among them. Well, and even if they do, presumably they have Google Maps. Which oh, so might... you think that the traffic report is it is it is a, you think that the entirety of the traffic report is dead? Yeah. I mean, does anyone is anyone really going to like tune into their local TV station to find out where there's traffic information that will be immediately out of date by the time you turn the TV off and gotten in the car um, versus just looking on their phone? And having... I hadn't considered that. You know, I think about traffic and weather on the eights, you know, um, <laughs> which is <laughs> that's how they would say it on 1010 wins. Uh, my, uh, my hometown uh, talk radio say uh, traffic and weather on the eights. But, you know, um but I guess that's uh, I guess that's dead now. What what are they doing on ten ten wins all the time? Uh, they're probably just telling you the time, which is again utterly <laughs> superfluous. Somewhat unimportant. My goodness, my goodness, an entire industry just completely decimated by the traffic and weather apps. I'm afraid so. Although I mean, local weather is still a thing. I mean, they're, they're, let's be honest, local weather reports were never really about um, telling you what the weather was going to be. It was primarily infotainment where they would send some junior reporter out to stand in a hurricane so you could look at pictures of them standing in a hurricane while they confirmed there was a hurricane sure I mean, sure sure yeah i i suppose that's true but local weather prediction i mean i can get we can get you can get pretty granular if you have the right weather apps on your on your telephone yeah or, i mean you could also just look out the window like a normal person but or you know. my dad you know my dad uh you could look out the window like a normal person but that's not predictive well it could be i suppose but my dad our lord a, has passages in the gospel where he reminds people that they know how to predict the weather by looking at the sky you know i'm those are not coming to mind for me you he's he's exhorting the disciples to read the signs of the times he said you know that you know if the sky is you know if you look to the sky and it's red or something you you know that rain is coming or i, I forget exactly how the oh right i believe what the lord said is red at night sailors delight red in morn sailors take warn i'm pretty sure that was what he I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but it was more or less a riff on that. But anyway, it's clear that our Lord and the disciples were were keen meteorologists. Um, So, yeah. My dad works in aviation, uh, as I think you know. And um, that means that on one of his monitors at work, he has like um, this, these weather maps from the National Weather Service, I suppose, that are always updating. And um, and you have to be, I think, a meteorologist to, to read them well. Uh, in fact, my dad has a degree in meteorology, so I suppose he can read them well. But you have to be a meteorologist to read them well, because they have like these lines of you know, coded, um, jargony coded 
weather information below them, and then you know you have to sort of know what it is you're looking at. The but actual some, science and engineering of weather reading, rather than just sending tally out water out there with an umbrella and a hurricane. Right, exactly. Or like um, a, a, a sun wearing sunglasses for a hot day. Right. Uh, you know those these kind of things. Um, but uh, so from time to time, when a major weather event is happening, my dad will screenshot his National Weather Service um, monitor and, and send it to me. And uh, what I can glean from that is that some sort of weather event is going to happen. But I have <laughs> but no training know what it is. in reading the thing. I, I only uh, The best that I can know is that some sort of weather event is, is, is on the verge of Your of dad happening. is easily one of the more interesting people I've never met. Oh, yeah. He's, good. I mean, he's a good guy. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I don't have any, I don't have an immediate follow up to that. <clears throat> no, no, no. Totally, perfectly understandable. Perfectly understandable. Um, well, Ed, we have a lot of things that we uh, want to talk about today, and um, and uh, you might have some things you want to talk about as well. Um, but before uh, we get to those, um, I would like to propose a topic, uh, if you would um, allow me to, because as you probably know, um, I am uh, this semester. Um, teaching uh, canon law at a seminary, uh, a kind of, not the whole semester, there was, a, there was a seminary that had a canon law professor, and the canon law professor had to stop teaching canon law somewhat abruptly, and so the seminary asked me if I would kind of fill in for the remainder of the semester, which I've been doing now for the past, oh, I guess, month or so. And uh, I'm really enjoying it, and I know that you are, um, you teach canon law at a university in the summer, and, um, and I'm really enjoying it. But one of the reasons I'm enjoying it, Ed, is because I feel like um, in teaching the law, I have this sort of in teaching canon law as a uh, as a discipline to these seminarians I, I i feel myself a renewed appreciation for the law not just in terms of like particular norms but a sort of renewed invitation to step back even from the particular norms of um of the code or even the structure of the code to to, to start seeing the way in which the code the the legal tradition of the church really is um designed um, to condition us towards a particular way of thinking about being a society and a particular way of living as a society. Um, and uh, I, I've said often on the show that, you know, canon law is drawn from, uh, in part, uh, sacred theology in addition to being drawn just from um, the legal traditions of the West, um, helping to contribute to them and drawing from them at the same time. But but, but in a certain way, um, I've been teaching general norms and the early parts of Book 2 over the past few weeks, and in so doing... I feel like I have this really renewed appreciation for the way in which many of the canons that I typically sort of regard as exhortatory canons, the sort of um, the sort of fervorino canons that just kind of make a short declarative statement about what the church is or what a particular concept in the church is, but aren't really sort of, um, but are descriptive rather than being prescriptive or normative in a certain way. Um, I, I feel like I have a new appreciation for those because they really do outline in a very beautiful way uh, what how the church understands justice, properly ordered relationships, proper, a properly ordered sense of um, filiation to the church. And um, and that's a really cool thing. So I'm just excited about that. And because I know you, you also teach canon law, I thought you might want to, I don't know, say something. Um, okay, we can, we can talk about that if you'd like, but we're going we're gonna to have to put some kind of limit on that conversation because that's the sort of thing that we could easily end up talking about for two hours and well yeah i mean we have one this is a one hour podcast hours, but just not on the show right and no it's true because saying, we have a game so we can only probably talk about it for 55 minutes because then we no, have a game hang on there's also some news this week that we should discuss there is there's there's very big and important news but i'd like to just 
step back from the news for a minute. I, I understand. Talk about saying, this thing that I I, about. I'm willing to follow you down this this little tunnel of adventure into the law, but I just want to make it absolutely clear. In 15 minutes, we're stopping and we're going to talk about the news. Well, so are you? Are you? I guess you would say that's kind of the decision that. I guess you would say the host of a show makes. So are you kind of assuming the mantle? No. No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> you, you could call this... Um, this is uh, this is Pillar Media LLC's ownership getting involved in the production of the show. <laughs> well, I, I don't think you're getting a majority vote there, given that I control exactly half of the, uh, half of the, uh, the shares there. That, that may be true, but I'm, I'm willing to drag this out. Um, Fair. Anyway, yes, let, by all means, but we do actually have to talk about the news because quite a lot of interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah, quite happened. a lot of interesting news is happening. No one is disputing that. Don't worry. We're going to talk about the I news. No one is disputing it. I just want to make sure someone's talking about it on this podcast, too. You're talking about it. I'm talking about it. You give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the world. News and weather on the 8th. Oh, my Lord. Okay. I would have been pretty decent at talk radio, I think. Honestly, J.D., I think you missed your calling. I think you would have been. <laughs> you, you, know, you have the sunny disposition and the irrepressible character of a... No, this um, is. I, I, this, I'm not going to receive this backhanded compliment from you. But do you know that my my uh, my dad was a drive time radio meteorologist for a while after he got out of college? Really? Yeah, isn't that cool? That's very cool. Did he do the copter thing, uh, where he pretended that he was in a helicopter? Yeah, actually, I don't know. I I hope I hope so. Because you know, one of my favorite things is you know the what is it? I think it's in Bull Durham where they they're showing you um, the guys calling the game for the radio broadcast, but it's an away game and they couldn't send people from the local radio station on the way. So they would get like a phone call every couple of minutes telling what was happening. And the guys would be broadcasting from the home stadium and just like pretending they were live at the game and they do fake crowd noises. And like they had a whole box Mm -hmm. of stuff to like fake the noises of the game being played and stuff. Yeah. yeah, That would be awesome. Yeah. Sorry. I never saw Bulldorm. What? No, it's a, it's it's a Kevin Costner movie, right? Yeah. Something to know about me. I don't care for the cost. You know, I, Kevin Costner's work um, tanked heavily. Well, around the, the time 90s. of Waterworld, I suppose you could say. Well, I was actually going to go with Dances with Wolves, but yeah, <laughs> I'd say Dances with Wolves was where, for some reason, he just took a creative career jump off a cliff and never. Well, he's gotten back a little bit in his old age, actually. I that, but there was a bad period there in the '90s, and when everything was just gar. I mean, Dances with Wolves was. I didn't find it in a compelling. I, I'd film, back but. up just a little bit more. I'd back up a little bit more and say that the bad period probably started uh, with Bull Durham in 1988. Have you seen it? No, that's you're wrong. You're you're wrong. Bull Durham is a fantastic movie. All of Kevin Costner's baseball movies he are made, excellent. So Kevin Costner made two baseball movies in a row: Bull Durham and Field of Dreams. Yeah, and they so are the guy fantastic just movies. He kind of ran, just didn't have things to. Didn't have other topics he was interested in? Or? He, Kevin Costner is, is a big baseball fan. That is known. So what are the recent Kevin Costner movies that you think are great? You said he's really made a comeback and, and been I someone. I made a real he did. Comeback, You said he's but... made a comeback and you said he's been really, in, in recent years, been very influential in your life. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm just wondering what these recent Kevin Costner films are that have had such an impact on you. Uh, Three Days to Kill was a great movie. I enjoyed that. Oh, sure. He played, uh, he played uh, Ethan Renner. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think that was the character's name. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, American CIA agent Ethan Renner. If I remember correctly, yeah. he was working with a team to capture... Are you group. are you just reading his Wikipedia page right now? Is that <laughs> yes. what's going on? Yes, that's okay. what's going on. No, Three Days to Kill was actually recommended to me when, around the time we had our daughter, um, and a friend of mine said, oh, you need to watch this. If you're going to be a father of daughters, you need to see this film, because it's basically middle-aged dad um, fantasy fulfillment where, you know, he rides into town and 
you know, cleans the town out and protects his daughter. It's basically taken only with humor. What, is, um, it, is it the sort of thing where he's like middle-aged desk jockey dad and then all of a sudden he gets the chance to be no. a hero? Okay, because I hate that. No, like, he's, career, he's career CIA covert killer black ops guy who, you know, thinks he's got a limited time to live because he's got some he's brain tumor or something like that. And so the plot of the film is he gets made to do one last job while he's simultaneously trying to rebuild his relationship with his teenage daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a fun yeah. it's a fun film. Sure, sure, sure. sure Johnny sure, Depp's sure. crazy ex-wife is in it. Oh, Winona Ryder? I don't did Johnny Depp marry Winona Ryder? I don't know. They were just in no, Edward Scissorhands together. Amber so Heard, I think, married. is her name. What's that? Amber Heard, I think, is her okay, name. Okay, I don't know anything about movies. Oh. Okay. Well anyway, we were gonna talk about Canon Law and I was kinda of waiting on you to get serious. Sorry, I apologize. You you wanted to talk about Kevin Costner's movies instead, and frankly, I could do that. So, um, I just one more thing: the reason Dance with Wolves is terrible is because it beat Goodfellas for the Academy Award, which is when the Academy Awards also jumped the shark because uh. there is no planet in which that is a superior film to Goodfellas. Yeah. Sure. Anyway, to the law, JD. What do you want to talk about? Anyway, she did date Johnny Depp, uh, Winona Ryder, but they didn't get married. Right. So I don't know what happened there. Should we should we do some reading about it right now? Like I was we, about to say, this is your last if, chance to talk about the law because otherwise we're going into Do- Johnny. What Depp I'm wondering and, is if there's an, a kind of early '90s TMZ that we can just Google real quick and find out what happened between Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp. Like what? I don't know, but I'm willing you to bet what? knowing the two protect. It was crazy. Whatever. It was. I bet it was when she got arrested for shoplifting. Johnny Depp was like, "Look, I can't have that bad influence uh, around." I can't have that bad influence. He's kind I, of a I've got a really clean cut image. Right? And I, yeah, isn't that right? Okay, so. Um, with regard to the law, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of know, I suspect you sort of, I don't know, you were going to say something and then I'll talk about some canons if you want. Okay. No, I'm, um, I, I do understand what you mean when you say that, you know, um, the sort of Fervorino canons, the sort of, um, what, what can appear like purely like it's, it, on the surface, it feels like bad legislation because if you view the the law and the code of canon law purely as a sort of lists of thou shalt's and thou shalt nots, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't appear to do much in the way of. Um, having effect because it just basically says you know all the Christian faithful should and all the Christian faithful can oh, or yeah. must yeah. and are and similarly with all the lay Christian faithful and mm-hmm. clerics are right. and da 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 and and so it can feel like sort of just this sort of exhortatory um, oh so you want to go kind of the beginning of book two well I don't you, this, you pick this topic I'm just no, saying I think we should I think we should to, go to, the- to your point about reading this part of the law. What you can get out of it, and this is what, you know, when I teach canon law, what I always try and tell people is, you, you know, you can learn the contents of the of the code. That's fine. I mean, you can you can train a monkey to, you know, find the right number canon for right. a thing uh-huh. if you need right. to. Anyone can use an index. And that's why there's so many so many armchair canonists who think that being canonist is to look up the thing. Right. Yeah. But actually what the study of canon law is, is it's a study of ecclesiology. It's about right. understanding what the church is, how it is constituted, and how the church conceives of itself as a communion of persons, as a society, things like that. And these these canons at the beginning of book two, the, the rights and obligations of all the Christian faithful, of the lay faithful, and of the clergy, um, are, are really about setting out, defining who we are as the Christian people right. in the Catholic Church. And to understand that is to understand our role, our place in the church and in the life of the church. And that right. is a hugely important thing. And so even that, you know, um, we have talked in the past about the way in which the, the, the study of the law, one of the values of the study of the church's law. And part of the reason we're talking about this is because I'd really encourage everybody to read, those of you who are interested at least in this kind of thing, to read like the first, I don't know, the first um, – 
um, I guess the first 40 canons or so of Book 2, which are kind of like these delineations of the rights and obligations of various kinds of classes of Christians. Um, uh, but um, but even this notion that, that, that the law thinks about um, persons in terms of subjects of, in, of rights and obligations, like lays out um, a particular vision of what a society is that's different – you know, from our own sort of American vision of, of what a society is, which lays out, which thinks about a person merely in terms of what? Uh, merely in terms of rights. Right, really. right. So um, the, the church lays out, when it sort of makes these bills of rights that it makes at the beginning of Book 2 of the Code of Canon Law, lays out both rights and obligations at the same time. And the reason for that is found in Canon 208, if you want to go to the law. All right, I'm there. From their rebirth. Go ahead, you can read it. Oh, no, you, you go ahead. I know no you, you have a preferred English translation. I like Please, I like it when you translate on the fly. Okay. Um, among the Christian faithful, through their birth in Christ, there exists a true equality regarding dignity and action by which they all cooperate in the building up of the body of Christ according each to one's own condition and function. Yeah. Among the Christian faithful, there exists, because of their or from their rebirth in Christ, a true equality regarding dignity and action by which they all cooperate in the building up of the body of Christ according to each one's own, each one's own condition and function. This canon is really important, and, um, and, and it's what I wanted to talk about in terms of the way in which the law gives us a sense of what it means to be a society, because um, it gives us some sense of what our society, the Christian society, is rooted in, our rebirth in Christ. We are made a, um, a people with... with, with um, with common purpose and rights and obligations to each other by virtue of our baptism. And, um, and, and in our baptism, like in our sacramental dignity, we're equal to each other um, because we, we're all reborn in Christ. But, um, but we're not just sort of, you know, um, all men are created equal and so go do what you want. Um, this canon makes very clear um, we have uh, a mission, right? This is a, miss- this is a missional society. This is a, this is a society, um, a people with a purpose, which is to say, cooperation in the building up of the body of Christ, and um, subsequent to that, because we have a mission and a purpose, um, our our equality, even um, our equality in in um, in dignity um, and action in terms of like um, the kinds of things that we do, all being um, all being important, is nonetheless sort of conditioned, limited, shaped, and directed by our condition and our function. That we have different roles in the life of the church. We have different circumstances. We have different. Um, uh, classes even in the church, you know, we have a clerical class and a lay class, and then um, the class which is religious, which is neither fish nor fowl, or both fish and fowl, because it, religious can be clerical and lay. And so you can um, eat them on Fridays, basically. Right, exactly. And so um, I'm just like, as I've been teaching, I've just been thinking so much about how this notion of being um, a teleological society, a society for a mission, um, in which we're equal in dignity, but our equality is conditioned by our circumstances. Um, but always sort of subordinated to the mission and always rooted in our sacraments. It's a beautiful sense of what it is to be the church. It, it is. Um, and also it, it is, as all good law should, it imparts a right ordering. Right. To I mean, this is this is the function of law. This is what Thomas Aquinas says. Is the function of law is not um, command, if you like, but it is, it, it is the creation of order. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why Thomas Aquinas says there is law in heaven, is because mm-hmm. heaven is not a disorderly place. It is a very ordered place. And right. There is and, law. And that order Even allows, if no one needs to be constrained by the law or compelled by the law, there and, is still law. That order, in the Christian society, that order allows, rather than being um, contrary to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, the charismatic gifts of the Holy you know, uh, uh, the charismatic presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, um, that order um, and, and sort of rightly ordered relationships 
better allow both um, the church to, to discern the charismatic presence of the Holy Spirit and then to, to see it flourish. Well, I mean, that's exactly its function is it creates space and fosters these things that right. um, it uh, it ensures that the church thinks of itself and provides for itself in a way that allows for these things that um, there was something there, there was something as you were saying that I was thinking, yes, and this is exactly the point with something. And I can't remember what it was now, but it was clever and I'm annoyed. I never like to miss an opportunity to be clever. Um, <laughs> what I said was clever or. No, no, it was nothing you said. It was what I was thinking about <laughs> while you were talking. Um, oh, it was the, um, that, that this is what Benedict Sixteenth said in, in a famous speech he gave to some seminarians in Germany, where he said that you have to right. learn to love canon law, because a society without law is a society without rights. And that, you know, we have a right to various things in the church, including the sacraments, um, the right to, uh, you know, increase our knowledge of the faith, the right in certain circumstances to express our opinion and even mm-hmm. to, you know, assert our needs to our pastors and leaders in the church. But all of these rights find their proper expression and their correct orientation in communion with the church through through law, through a legal understanding of exactly what you just said in Canon 208. Well, look uh, at Canon this, 212, paragraph 3, which kind of encapsulates a lot of what you just said. According to the knowledge competence and prestige which they possess they have the right and even at times the duty they being the being the christian Christian faithful faithful, the baptized um, yes have the right and even times the duty to manifest to the sacred pastors their opinion on matters which pertain to the good of the church and to make their opinion known to the rest of the christian faithful without prejudice to the integrity of faith and morals this is what i call the youtube clause um without prejudice to the integrity of faith and morals with reverence towards their pastors and attentive to the common advantage and to the dignity of persons. So, and this is, I mean, again, this, for me, this is something, and <clears throat> I don't know just, if this is, oh, carry on. No, please. Oh, what's going on? I don't know. I don't You're letting know. me talk an awful lot. What's going on? I don't know. I don't know. Who got I was to you? still wondering about Winona and Johnny You're Depp. Still Go thinking ahead. about Winona Ryder? No, I was still thinking about Winona and Johnny, not just Winona Ryder. You're thinking Ryder. about Winona and Johnny. Okay. Okay. Okay, found it. Um, no, what I was going to say was that um, the reason that it's important that we have this, as I said, YouTube clause, if you like, um, about the expression of opinion and need and even um, articulation of, of of the lay faithful on matters of um, things in which they have expertise uh, is it, all very important in life. But this is not an unqualified right. You don't have the right to mouth off just because right. you feel like it. Right. And that this is important because the church, of course, has a very strong central conception of the common good. And the common good, of course, is the salvation of souls and the communion of the church, the unity of the church, that the church is fundamentally aimed towards the communion of saints that, you know, we are, we are looking to all be together together in heaven. Um, and it's possible to have a disordered, use of these rights oh absolutely and the, yeah that, that's and that where, is a bad thing because the rights can be turned against the society which creates and guarantees them and that is a big niche niche that's where canon 212 becomes a kind of 212 paragraph 3 becomes a kind of uh, application of, it's nice because it's on the um, page facing it you know so you can just look at them both but it comes it becomes a kind of application of that canon 208 which we read because um it affirms, right, that there's a kind of uh, that there's a kind of dignity, right? There's a kind of dignity that comes from baptism, which says that everyone has the right to say what they think on manners which pertain to the good of the church, and um, and at the same time that right is conditioned by 
first of all, just knowledge and competence, right? So mm-hmm. um, your right to say what what you think about the, the church and be heard is, is, is conditioned upon how much you actually know and how competent you are. Um, but at the same time, that right, um, which is sort of limited by condition, it also has to be ordered towards the, the mission of the church, the cooperation and the building up of the body of Christ, which is why there are those YouTube clauses, which is to say, yes, everyone, by virtue of being baptized, has the right to manifest their opinion on matters pertaining to the good of the church, as, you know, limited by, conditioned by their knowledge and their competence. Um, but at the same time, that has to be done um, without prejudice to the integrity of faith and morals, which is to say not harming someone else's faith or morality in, in, in one's yen to sort of spout off one's view. Or um, attract subscriptions. Right, with reverence toward their pastors, which is to say not sort of becoming um, um, so anti-clerical as to sort of uh, just, you know reject the very notion of, of hierarchy in a hierarchical church. And, well, which um, is itself an act of schism because the hierarchy communion right. with the church is defined as the communion of faith, the communion of the sacraments, and the communion of hierarchy and governance. And attentive to the common good and human dignity, which is to say in a manner that's consistent with, with our own identity. So this is kind of like an application of that. And as well, I was reading that this weekend and thinking about that. If I may, before you tell me what you were thinking about this weekend, yeah. one thing I would that you said that I would like to just amplify because I thought it was well said um, is that what we're talking about in Canon 212 here is is very much about um, the exercise of rights towards the church's mission. Right. Um, and, and this is what I always, um, this is something I always try and say whenever I find myself talking about canon law to people, is to say that you have to understand that canon law, the church doesn't exist to exist. The church right. is not a static institution. Right. And canon law, as if you like the skeleton of, of the body of the church that gives it shape and, um, you know, allows it, uh, you know, to have sort of structure. Um, the body is designed to move that if it's not moving, it's not working, it's not alive. And so every canon in the code, every bit of church law has to be understood as being at the service of the evangelization, because that is the church's primary mission that, and by evangelization, I don't just mean like, you know, making people who, announcing the charisma to people who are not Christian, although it is that, that, um, but also the, you know, the, the, the proper celebration of the sacraments and things like that. Um, but this is what it means when we say in canon law, as the code does, that the salvation of souls is the supreme law of the church. This is, this is what, the, what the church means by that is not that you can do anything you want in the name of the salvation of souls. Right. But that everything in the code, everything in the legal mind of the church is mission focused, is with a purpose. And so every action, every right, every obligation that a member of the society of the church has is qualified by and oriented towards and only properly exercised in that mission of the church. Sorry, that's all I wanted to say. No, you wanted I to talk that's... about Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder. No, I didn't actually. I think that oh. I'm glad you said that um, because um, <clears throat> as I was reading this canon and even as you were talking about it, but as I was kind of looking at it this week, it occurred to me that this notion of um, – uh, this notion, which is a, an application of our ecclesiology, you know, uh, with regard to speech. Yes, people have the right to express their opinion, but th- it has to be an inform- informed opinion in order to be heard. And they have to do so um, in in service to um, the mission of the thing. Um, this strikes me in, in a very real way as what may well be intended to be sort of modeled, exercised, or rehearsed um, in in the synod on synodality. Now, that doesn't mean that it's actually being, you know, c- coming to the fore that way. It doesn't mean that there aren't any number of ways in which it w- um, may, in fact, be poorly exercised. It doesn't even mean that there aren't agendas that w- 
will invariably be sort of um, glommed onto it. But this notion of um, there is a Christian way to have a conversation and um, a, a way to have a conversation about serious issues in the life of the church that is oriented towards the church's mission um, and, and contextualizing the church's mission, it seems to me that that, that, um, that is the kind of thing which is under attempt with the synod on synodality. Yes, and even I affirming think... sort of the baptismal dignity, which says, you know, um, to, to, within within those limits, um, Catholics have a right, the baptized, the Christian faithful have a right to express their opinions on things which pertain to the good of the church. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, so whatever happens with it, uh, like, I think um, I think um, understanding that as the sort of um, principle of the thing, the, 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 the you know, the, the... Well, I think this is what it means. I think this is what the thing, you often get, um, you get uh, people in the church, bishops, prelates, apostolic nuncios, um, giving speeches about synodality and about what it means to be a synodal church or... Without ever um, actually saying anything. Without, well, so this is this is what I was going to say, is, uh, and some of them even go so far as to say a synodal way of being church, which is evil. Um, but uh, the, the I, I think what a lot of people, when, when we talk about and when other people talk about what it, you know, when it says the church is synodal, the church has to be synodal. There is no other way for the church to be than to be synodal. Um, I think if you hear that as, well, the church has to be an endless pyramid scheme of committee meetings where insiders get to push an agenda away from scrutiny and up the chain of command without being properly questioned or checked, that's a bad thing. And it's also a bad understanding of synodality. I think you're right. The right understanding of synodality means that every member of the church is exercising these rights in a way which is coherent and in line with the communion of the faith, which is a communion of faith, of sacraments, and of hierarchy, mm-hmm. and understanding and respecting that, which is why, incidentally, one of the things that drives me most crazy about the synod on synodality is the is the the synodal secretariat's sort of special website that they've set up for this, and the inclusion of express, explicitly heterodox um, campaigning organizations in in their sort of reference material. It's like, well, this is not authentic synodality. It cannot be authentic synodality if it breaks communion with. Um, faith and morals or the sacraments or or hierarchy and so when you see groups like for example catholics for choice in scare quotes um saying well we're going to take part in the synodal process and we are going to do our best to make sure that we circumvent the naughty bishops who would try and screen out our legitimate opinions from this sort of thing and figure out how to make sure our voices are heard you know in rome and stuff like well that's not authentic synodality if you're trying first of all (laughs) to speak against the faith that's that's not synodality. And second of all, if you're trying to circumvent the role of the diocesan bishop in it, then you're breaking this proper understanding of a hierarchy in the dialogue of the church, which is also not authentic synodality. So, yeah, yeah I think you're right. right. No, that, that's absolutely right, which is unfortunate because, again, I think that the, the notion of the thing is um, is very clearly sort of a um, – uh, is very clearly a Catholic notion, which is um, – uh, which could be um, – uh, uh, which could be witness to the prospect of the of the notion of an authentically Catholic conversation taking place for the for the good and service of the church, and uh, probably um, in any number of ways has has deviated from that. Largely, I think because of, uh, um, or at least in part, I think because that vision has been, I think, insufficiently expressed with regard to the nature of the thing itself. Yeah, I think it's probably yeah. Okay, Ed, I know you want to keep talking about this, but something historic happened today. Um, I don't know if you know that or not, but something historic happened today. For the first time, 
in hundreds of years, I, I want to say for the first time in more than 400 years, uh, a member of the College of Cardinals um, was required to, um, to, to t- was required to give Go declarations. On. Go on. What are you gonna, uh, were you going to use the T word there? Was questioned. Uh, was a number, questioned. We, we'll talk about why we're, we're being, uh, w- what this little inside joke is in a minute. But um, for the first time in more than 400 years, a member of the College of Cardinals was questioned in a judicial process pertaining to the financial administration of the church. Um, because Cardinal Angelo Bacciu took the metaphorical stand today uh, in the sort of first day of uh, of, of, inter- of question of courtroom questioning um, in the uh, Vatican sprawling financial trial, as it were. Um, would you like to speak about this for a moment? Um, what happened, and why is it I, important? I will speak about this only for a moment. <clears throat> it, it was a it was an historic day. It, it was a historic day, yes, and historic day, JD. Um, and and that is nice and that is satisfying. I don't know that um, apart from, if you like, the the fact that it happened, I think was probably the biggest news of the day. Right. Uh, Cardinal Betsy is facing a, a number of accusations concerning um, uh, financial malpractice and other misdeeds. He's facing specific charges of embezzlement, abuse of office, and subornation, which is basically obstruction of justice through mm-hmm. witness tampering. Um, he was only really questioned about uh, one of the sort of, if you like, columns of alleged financial um, malpractice uh, that he's accused of, which is specifically pertaining to the channeling and funneling of church funds to members of his own family in Sardinia. And his defense of this basically was, well, this was all accepted practice in the Vatican. I mean, you know, yes, there may have been a hundred thousand euros of church funds sent to my brother's personal bank account, but I mean, he runs a Catholic charity, and it's totally normal in 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 the church to to send money from the Vatican to individuals' bank to, accounts to to, to, yeah, to do to the good bank works. account of a brother of a cardinal. I mean, you know, that's right. how charity gets done. Perfectly right. ordinary, oh, right. absolutely ordinary. Um, mm-hmm. He was, at, I mean, in this. Um, I mean, his brother does run a Catholic charity. Or at least an organization named the Spes Cooperative, which is affiliated with Caritas and uh, the Diocese of Orsini mm-hmm, um, in, right. in Sardinia. So that those are real things uh, legally, and um, you know, apparently the, this charity also lent a hundred thousand euros, I think, of money that came from the church channeled by Cardinal Betchu. Uh, but I think the Spes Cooperative lent one hundred and fifty thousand euros to. Cardinal Betchew's niece by niece. marriage. Who, who um, he says, well, that's not even real. I mean, how can you say that's wrong? It's not even a relative. Yeah, his, he said, oh, well, she's she's an old friend, but I mean, you can't say she's in my family. I mean, right. Niece by marriage. <laughs> Come on. Right. Um, so uh, that was uh, that was fun to see, um, not least because th- that's exactly what I thought he was going to do, right. <laughs> which was fun. Um, it, it was, you know, it was nice to see that he... It's nice to know that Cardinal Betchew and I have reached a level of interpersonal sympathy where I can almost... I think you have. You're really, I mean, I would say... going to come out of his mouth. You know, you, you guys complete each other's sentences, sentences. I don't want to say two hearts beating as one, but if I said it, it wouldn't be wrong. It wouldn't be totally wrong. Right. Um, he they, they they danced around the issue of um, your friend Cece Maragna and the hundreds of thousands of euros in, in Secretary of State funds that mm-hmm. Cardinal Betchew had... Monsignor Alberto Palasca wired to her and instructed him to destroy the evidence of the transactions, which Palasca didn't do, much to Cardinal Betchew's rage, right. according to Palasca. Um, but both uh, 
Maragna and Cardinal Betchew, um, despite the Cardinal having said that he was there to answer all their questions and he wanted the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, because that would set him free, etc. Um, he, he demurred, as did, as has Maragna on this particular point. She wasn't in court, but she said this previously in statements to the court that and claimed that this is a matter of state secrecy and they couldn't possibly uh, talk about what they were up to for and on behalf of the Secretary of State right. for all that money. So the judges put a pin in that and said, well... We'll ask the Secretary we'll of State. We'll just go find out what's subject we'll to the just, Pontifical yeah. Secret, which is good because actually nobody ever knows what's subject to the Pontifical Secret, so it would be nice to get a little clarity about that. It would be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we will see. They're, they're due back in court at the end of the month, and um, the, the court is expected to report back on, on the application or not of the Pontifical Secret to these things. Right. I, I have no prediction on what will happen there. On the one hand... I think it would be fair to say that the Secretary of State is reflexively secretive about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, on the other hand, there's a great deal of reputational skin in the game here. And that's right. I, if I were Cardinal Perilene or Pope Francis, I don't know that I would want to have Cardinal Betchu and Ms. Maragna um, sort of hiding under my, uh, under the tails of my capa magna, so to speak. I I think I would prefer not. I yeah, I think I would say no. You two are on your own. You go ahead and say whatever it is you've got to say. But we're not gonna we're not gonna let you hide behind the pontifical yeah, I think, secret. I, I on think that. that will be resolved in exactly that that way. We'll, we'll see. Um, mm-hmm. But again, that was I ex- that was expected. Um, wizened veterans of of this process uh, theorized that this would be the line taken by Cardinal Betchu, and so mm-hmm. it came to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, that was nice. Cardinal Betchu is due back in court to give further um, declarations to the court uh, uh, in early April, I think is when he's when he's back. And That's uh, right. the next time the court because meets, the process is sort of unusual. The, it, this is an inquisitorial process, which is which is un, which is unfamiliar to uh, to people who are kind of mostly familiar with the courtroom from Law and Order, which is a good way to get familiar with the courtroom. But this is um, but but Law and Order and and and, and American legal processes writ large are um, are are adversarial processes, with, with the are. exception, I think, of some administrative law um, processes, admiralty um, courts. Uh, in within the context of the United States, um, uh, the United States has admiralty courts. What are you talking about? All right, um, admiralty courts. What do you think happens and, when your privateer takes a ship off the coast of Florida? You have to bring it into an admiralty. I mean, come on. We're not going to talk about the law of the sea this week. I don't know what I was thinking. I apologize profusely for that. Um, now I lost it, buddy. Listen. Um, so yes, you're quite right that the with the exception, of, with like, the exception of certain administrative law courts and admiralty courts here in the United States, um, most of our um, most of our judicial processes in this country are adversarial processes, which is to say, um, uh, um, uh, uh, the judge is a passive Kramer referee. Versus, yeah, Kramer versus Kramer, Roe versus Wade, um, etc. Um, the People versus Larry Flint, etc. The the judge is a is a procedural referee um, as uh, as sort of two sides um, present a sort of competing versions of what happened, or one side pre- presents a version of what happened, and the other side kind of refutes it. Um, the civil law system, which governs the Vatican City State, uh, is an inquisitorial process, which means that the judge is not charged with refereeing what happens between. Um, one side and the other. Rather, um, the judge is charged with making um, uh, an inquiry um, into the truth, and the lawyers um, are there effectively to advocate for the judge to um, make that inquiry according to the rules by which they think he ought to play, which is to say, you know, to to make sort of procedural exceptions when they think he's not doing what he's supposed to do, 
and um, to nominate um, uh, both pro- both sort of perspective streams of evidence and questions which might might be asked of the parties of witnesses these kinds of things. But the judge is the driver of the thing. He kind of picks up where the police left off and drives the thing rather than kind of the district attorney driving the thing and um, and the judge refereeing between him and the defense counsel. Now, there is something like a prosecutor. He's called the promoter of justice, and it's his job to sort of represent the common interest of the Vatican City state um, and to submit questions which are aimed at securing convictions as the defense is required to submit questions or evidence which are which is aimed at um, uh, securing an acquittal. But the judge drives the process, asks the questions, calls the people, and um, and the procedures, therefore, don't sort of go in the way that we expect, where one person will take the stand, be be kind of questioned, and then cross-examined. Rather, the judge will ask questions about this, then he'll ask questions about that. Uh, you know, from all the people who he wants to, he'll consider sort of this, then he'll consider another topic, then he'll consider another topic. And so the parties um, to the case and the witnesses m- might not be questioned in sort of one smooth sequential event. That's right. Uh, and which is the, the judge for part of it too. Dismiss people and then call them back and want to pick up lines of question that he's left off, things like that. And, you know, as you say, it's it's not to say that the prosecution um doesn't have any any input into the into the process. They're certainly free to suggest lines of questioning and even individual questions that the judges may wish to ask. But what questions are asked is down to the judges and it is the judges who do all of the asking. Um and and just to explain why we were sniggering about words we aren't using, like testify. Well, we got and an argument today, right? I mean, we, you wrote up, uh, you wrote I, up uh, I, I what happened. I think an argument is just, honey, I don't like to think of it as an argument. It was, <laughs> we had a little tiff. We had, a, no, it wasn't even a tiff. Actually, you're right. Um, I was, th- I, I was not attaching a motion to argument. Um, we had, we, we had um, um, contraposing arguments on an issue. Um, we got into a, a debate about how to describe what happens in the courtroom. Because yes. Ed was using a very British uh, term, a very English term to describe what happened. And maybe you've seen it in our conversation. It drives me nuts. But Ed talked about um, Cardinal Bacchu giving evidence, uh, being yes. called forward to give evidence. And we don't usually say that in America. We usually say testified. And so I said to Ed, no, look, you're not going to use this term giving evidence. Uh, you're going to say that Cardinal Bacchu testified because this is America. And, and I uh, said, no, this isn't America. This is Vatican City. And you cannot say that Cardinal Becciu is testifying because testifying by its very definition means to speak under oath. And Cardinal right. Becciu is not appearing under oath because in church law, you cannot put a defendant under oath as they give evidence because no one can be compelled to make a public manifestation of conscience. And if you ask someone to swear an oath before God and then question them about their alleged criminal activities, it is the presumption of the church and of the court in this case that someone would would freely admit to their crimes rather than basically lie under an oath before God. And that's not cricket. So and you can't put – it's the, basically the canon law and church law version of the Fifth Amendment. And I said that I have I, – I, I'm frustrated with the phrase give evidence for two reasons. One, it's just not something that Americans say. But two, um, the, uh, the the parties to the case, including the accused, are, um, are adding to the acta of the case um, by answering questions. They're adding to the sort of substantive um, record of the case – but it is it is at the conclusion of the case for the judges to sift through all of the act of the case and pull out evidence which supports um, their conclusion, whether sort of for or against the questions which which define the trial. 
And so it is sort of premature to say that what they're saying is evidence, because thus far we only know that they're contributory to the act, but we don't know that they'll actually be, end up being evidence of anything. Yes, and, but uh, I mean, that I think is mistaken, because, of course, evidence is just something which makes evident a particular thing. And you can give right. evidence that you, you can, leads the judges away from a particular conclusion, it, even it if it's erroneous. No, it presupposes the veracity of what they have to say. Um, it, I, I just I, I thought it was a little it, bit much. Well, um, I mean, it for, does presuppose veracity, but then again, you can. There is a canonical crime of perjury for people who are not under oath, because right. and everything. But you can give false evidence in, so, in canonical court. So, so then we talk about what that was. Saying, if you are saying you wanted to use the, the phrase, you wanted to use the phrase attestation. You said, "Well, I'll just no, use attestation." And um, and, uh, and no, I, I think you. St- Oh, at first, okay, you're right. At first I said, well, perhaps you ought to use a canonical term attestation. But then we thought about it a little bit more and we decided that indeed um, witnesses in a canonical case give attestations and parties give declarations. So mm-hmm. if we were to want to be really, really technically correct um, throughout and the – And we co- want to be. <laughs> throughout the course of our reporting on this trial, we would be saying things over and over like Cardinal Bichu declared. Um, Cardinal Bichu declared before the court um, – I am not a crook. And I just uh, – it felt a little foghorn leghorn to me to continue on with the um, with the I declare, I declare, I declare. So what we ended up doing uh, throughout the story was to say uh, Cardinal Bichu answered questions, responded to questions. I think yes. I used declared one time. But, uh, but it is not technically true uh, that he testified – it is he not an American stand it is not because an, there is no stand. stand because there is no stand. It is not and an American I, term to talk about giving evidence, and so it's somewhat confusing. It's not a term. It's a, giving evidence is just two no, words. No, it's something that you guys would say. Like I read it sometimes in the Financial Times and other English papers, but this isn't an English paper, and it's important that this isn't an English paper. And why is it important that the pillar is not an English paper? Um, be, why? Because it's not. Because yeah, we, right. are a US we, we are company, a U.S. company. We are thing for... And we are a U.S. We publication. Are our primary audience is American. And why is it important for us to preserve the reality that our uh, our news outlet is American? Well, obviously, so we can't be sued in libel court in the so U.K. So we can't be sued in libel court in the U.K. If, if British subjects attempt to sue us for libel... Um, we have to, to uh, explain to them that, that UK courts have no jurisdiction over our news making because we make the US in we make the news in the US for the sake of a mostly US audience. Don't we have to do that? We do, but I like have to British think- subjects ever tried to sue us for libel in British courts? Yes. How many times do you think? Ten? Four? Five well, that I can o- think of the off past, the top of my head. Not just at the pillar, but how you and I. Oh, how many times it, do you think oh, you and I have oh, over yeah, ten the, easy? Yeah, ten easy, right? So, do you think that maybe using a fussy Britishism um, when we could just use a more accurate term uh, or a term that people understand might no, have less like, accurate term, J. Less <laughs> accurate term. No declarations. Declarations is a oh, more declaration accurate. is fine. Yeah, declaration. yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I'm just trying to keep that's you fine. And my concern was not. I'm happy to say. That declaration works for me, and we can continue using it. What I did not want it to sound like was some hackneyed version of a nineteen thirties. Yeah, right. He took the stand and testified. Cardinal, but you like, took didn't the do any of these things. He, there is no stand. He didn't take a Bible and he swore on it. He put his hand on a yeah. stack of Bibles and he told them all. And he I, put in the crook. No, he didn't I put his hand on a stack. I happen to believe that pillar readers are incredibly intelligent people, I'm, and they absolutely do right not require court reporting delivered to them in the anachronistic language of a TV procedural I, to be I, able to understand what's going on. I would agree with you about that. I would suggest that pillar editors are intelligent enough to make take pains 
to avoid Britishisms in order to avoid the ongoing threat of British litigation. Because I, who are, I mean, as it happens, who, who are some of the people that you can name who are subjects to Her Majesty the, the, the Queen? Uh, Gian Luigi Torsi, Raffaele Minzioni, Raffaele Minzioni, and, and um, Luciano Capaldo. Luciano have, Capaldo. Those are people whose lawyers know our telephone numbers. Ah, uh, they do. They do. <laughs> <laughs> they do know our telephone numbers. That so is a, a fact. historic thing happened today because Cardinal Angelo Bacciu, um made declarations in a Vatican City courtroom um, concerning the the criminal charges. <laughs> he did declare some he things. He did declare. He did declare some things. What are the having done all this? Just give us the highlights of that opening statement. I mean, just really, just give us the highlights of that. I got, hang on, I want to get you it in front of me because it, it is a, it is a remarkably quotable. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> um, Cardinal Betchu said, and this is. I'll, I'll just give you the whole thing. It's not that long. Um, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I confess that it is not easy for me to take the floor and to defend my integrity in this chair. I was preceded here by an unprecedented massacre of the media, presented as the worst of the cardinals, a violent and vulgar campaign, all kinds of accusations with a worldwide echo. I have been described as a corrupt man, greedy for money, disloyal to the Pope, concerned only with the welfare of my family. They have insinuated infamy on the integrity of my priestly life, having financed witnesses in a trial against a confrere, even of being the owner of oil wells or oil tax havens. Wells, I say. I do declare those oil I do wells. declare. Mm-hmm. Absurd accusations. Incredible. Grotesque. Monstrous. One wonders who, all, who wanted all of this and for what purpose. Of course, it meant de- demonizing me and destroying me. They hurt and struck me in my being as a priest and in my family affections, but they didn't fold me. No, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I am here with my head held high, with a clear conscience. I defend my right to innocence. Despite the media hype, Mr. President and judges, I trust in your impartial judgment. It will be the fruit, I am sure, of justice, arriving at the truth with the incontrovertible examination of the facts. I declare my total willingness to seek and to tell the truth with you. With some reservations, I presume. (laughs) I am not afraid of it. On the contrary, I want the truth to be proclaimed as soon as possible. Subject to the pontifical secret. I owe it to my conscience. I owe it to my former collaborators, to all the men of the Curia, to the ecclesial communities who knew me as the Pope's delegate for the beatification of numerous servants of God and in the numerous countries I served during my diplomatic service. I owe it to my family. I owe it to the whole church. I owe it above all to the Holy Father, who recently declared that he believed in my innocence. Here I am, Mr. President. I am ready to answer your questions. But before starting, I want to declare here, immediately, with the strength and transparency of my conscience, I never wanted a euro, not a cent that I have managed, or even knew of, to be subtracted, misused, or destined for purposes that were not exclusively institutional. I've always acted for the good of the apostolic scene and the whole church. Thank you, Mr. President. Judges, ladies and gentlemen of the Academy, you love me. You really love me. <laughs> now, what is that part? I mean, that was lovely. Thank you for the reading. What was that part about the Holy Father recently declared my innocence? Um, I what believe the that? technical legal term is the good Lord knows, J.D. <laughs> I am unaware of any think, statement I, I was trying to Pope. think of what it might be that Cardinal Bachu was referring to when he said the Holy Father recently declared my innocence in a case in which the Holy Father effectively authorized his prosecution. And then, and then, repeatedly intervened to ensure that the investigation and prosecution could continue. Could continue so much so that Cardinal Betu recently alleged that the Holy Father was interfering too much to tip the scales against him. 
Well, this is one of the remarkable things about Cardinal Angelo. I mean, am I right about that? Didn't Cardinal Maturis attorneys recently say the Holy Father has intervened in this case? When they were trying to get the case dismissed, didn't they very recently say the Holy Father has intervened procedurally to tip the scales effectively against a fair and just prosecution of my client? You know, a a fair and just hearing of my client. A complete denial of the right of defense is what was Uh alleged. Right. Um, Yeah, this is one of the remarkable, um, this is the great dichotomy, um, the enigma that is... Cardinal Betchew's participation in this legal process is he he by turns expresses his full confidence in the court um, only shortly after having said he was boycotting coming because it had sunk beneath his dignity as a cardinal. He says that he's there to tell the whole truth and to answer any and all questions, but then asserts basically um, executive privilege um, when they start questioning about things he might have done wrong, um, that he he says he can't wait to have his day in court and to um, be able to put his side of the story across, but then files a million motions to dismiss so that he never has to go into the witness box, quote unquote. Um he he says the Pope has interfered to have him railroaded through his lawyers and their motions, um, but then announces that the Pope has told him that he thinks he's innocent. I, this is, you, you know, it, it's a wild ride, J.D. It's why I love this story so much. What's coming next? Um, who knows? I, yeah, I genuinely. I know kind of well, no, I tell you why I don't I don't know what's coming next. And it's for the simple reason. One, I would call it a coin toss uh, about whether or not the Secretary of State um, decides to die in a ditch over uh, the the application of the pontifical secret to whatever nonsense that Cardinal Betchew and Cecilia Maragna were getting up to. And again, while Ms. Maragna has declined to tell the court what she did uh, for all those hundreds of thousands of euros that she was paid by the Secretary of State um, because of the pontifical secret, it hasn't stopped her telling Italian television what she did for all of that money, including acting as a private spy for Cardinal Betchew and spying on the private moral failings of senior curial figures. Um, So I'd say it's a coin toss whether the Secretary of State says, we'll take the hit, but we really don't want any of this out in public. Or they turn around and say, no, 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 we're going to lose all of our standing and possibly a few lawsuits in London if we don't look like we're being open and honest here. So no, we're going to weigh the pontifical secret. So that's a coin toss. So I don't know what's going to happen there. But also, I don't know what they're going to ask Monsignor Carlino about. Um, I suspect they will start in on the London property deal um, because Monsignor Carlino's name is on more than a few documents uh, in that deal. But it will also be interesting to see what else they ask him about, because, of course, um, he's uh, he's been all over some of the allegations of what we might call Nixonian. um, I think that's probably fair. Nixonian maneuvers to, you know, have offices bugged or swept for bugs or phones tapped or swept for taps and, you know. Things like that. So it will be interesting to see if they ask him about uh, things he's had to do uh, in that vein mm-hmm. or with, at the Secretary of State and versus other um, Vatican institutions, be it the IOR, be it the Vatican Gendarmes, the Office of the Auditor General, things like that. And whether he, too, will assert the pontifical secret. Um, that could be interesting. But I, I genuinely don't know what, what line of questioning they will pursue with Monsignor Carlino, which is why I don't know what will happen next. But I'm you better believe I'll be very fascinated to watch you and me both well i'll tell you what's going to happen next in this uh in this show ed because we have come to that point where what's going to happen next is we are going to play a game to celebrate the solemnity which we are celebrating are you serious yeah we've been talking for an hour we haven't even talked about just war yet we haven't talked about just war yet but we can 
I mean, listeners, don't, listeners, we should drop okay, by listeners, that, don't you think? Listeners, if you'd like us to spend five more minutes talking about Just War, just clap your hands right now. Wherever you are out there in podcast land, just clap your hands just once and we'll... We'll hear it. We'll hear it, and, uh, and and you'll bring Little Tink back to life, and we can talk about Just War for a minute. Oh, Ed, do you hear it? Nope, I don't. Well, okay, then. With time There's to no faith. No, I hear it. All right, oh, listeners. On <laughs> Pope Francis had a phone call with um, Patriarch Kirill of the of the um, of the uh, Russian Moscow Orthodox Patriarch Church. of the Russian Orthodox yeah, Church. Yeah, of the Russian Orthodox, the only Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church. Actually, um, uh, Patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church on uh, this week. And um, in the course of his conversation, the Pope said something which caused a little bit of a to-do, not a, not a gigantic to-do, but a little bit of a to-do, because the Pope was um, talking about uh, modern and contemporary warfare. And what did he say, Ed? What, was, what, was, what, what did he I'm say? I'm just getting the exact quote up well, in I front of wanted, me. I do want to talk about this. Yeah, I'm I sorry. I just want to get prepared. the exact quote up uh-huh. in yeah. front mm-hmm. of me. I can always tell when you want to talk about something because you're prepared when, we're, when it starts. <sighs> Uh, war is always unjust. Quote, since it is, Say yes, again. Since it is always the people of God who pay. Our hearts cannot but weep for the children and women killed along with all the victims of war. War is never the way. The spirit that unites us asks us as shepherds to help the peoples who suffer from war. Okay, there was, was the, a time, even okay, in our churches, go. where people spoke of a holy war or a just war. Today, we cannot speak in this manner. There was the a Christian time. awareness of importance. That? Just that uh, last there, bit? There was a time, even in our churches, when people spoke of a holy war or a just war. Today, we cannot speak in this manner. A Christian awareness of the importance of peace has developed. So there were people, after the Pope said, there was a time when people spoke of a holy war or a just war. Today, we cannot speak in this manner. A, Christ, a, a sense of peace has developed. There were people who said, did the Pope just say that just war theory, the church's long-standing tradition of a, of a just war theory or kind of a metric for evaluating the, the justice of warfare um, uh, is no longer. Did the Pope sort of um, intend to say that he no longer sort of holds that, the, you know, the, the, the church's sort of traditional approach to just war? And um, is the Pope assessment? by extension saying that Christians and Christian nations, if there is such a thing, um, are bound to a kind of radical pacifism? No, it, it should be said that I think, I, I think honestly, you know, the Pope was... The Pope was um, Speaking in an exhortatory manner with uh, – the Pope was speaking in an exhortatory manner with the Patriarch of Moscow, um, urging the Patriarch of Moscow to, uh, to uh, decry the war and, and, and uh, decry Putin's invasion of the thing. And it is entirely possible that the Pope was just – got – found himself in a rhetorical groove and ran with it. But it raises, I think uh, – you know, so, so I think the notion of sort of making too much of this is a bit too much because it's entirely possible that – you don't agree. You're shaking your head, but it's my turn to talk. Um, it is entirely possible that the Pope um, uh, simply got into a rhetorical groove and um, and you know was and, and and didn't even intend to sort of throw the notion of just war into the conversation. Um, it would make sense for him when talking to Kirill to say people used to talk about a holy war, but we no longer can talk about that because Putin has framed this war as a holy war, a kind of um, a kind of divinely mandated. Um, liberation of the Ukrainians from the influ- the secular and perverse influence of the West. And so it would make sense that the Pope was sort of talking about 
um, that, that, that this particular war can't be framed in that holy war framework that has gained some traction in Russia and among the theologians of the Russian Orthodox Church and even been alluded to by Patriarch Kirill at various times, which has been the subject of extraordinary criticism. Um, so that would make sense. It is possible, I think, to, to first acknowledge that the Pope may well have just been in a groove, but the evidence against that is that this, um, this phrase was then, like, picked up and... Um, uh, disseminated broadly by Vatican media, so there seemed to have been an intentional decision to take what the Pope had said and um, and and put it out there. Now, again, the Pope doesn't teach in a formal and official way when he's on the phone call with the Patriarch of Moscow, um, but um, again, Vatican media did take this disseminated broadly, and um, it seems likely that there was a decision in the Apostolic Palace to um, take this moment uh, at least to. Uh, uh, further the Pope's viewpoint on just war. So we did a little bit of research yesterday on the Pope's sort of viewpoint on just war theory, which is connected to John Paul II's viewpoint on just war theory, Gaudium et Spes's viewpoint on just war theory, and um, and, and sort of other recent thinkers on the subject. And John really, the 23rd, Pachamenteris. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Ed, you are chomping, champing at the bit. Uh, so why don't you kind of go ahead and talk through how you see this? Uh, okay. Well, the reason I was chatting a bit earlier, you actually looped back and, and made my point for me, which is the argument against the Pope having just got himself into a rhetorical groove. And, is that Vatican is that, media disseminated broadly? Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, they didn't release the full text of the phone call. What right. they did initially was they released a, a small handful of cherry-picked quotes, of which this one was this the This one block. featured very prominently. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This was the one they wanted everyone to report on. Um, but yeah, we. I still have six or seven volumes of Augustine on my desk right now from the reading we were doing yesterday. Um, I should say the reading you were doing yesterday because I had to go buy a car, which I did not You did, but no, you were, you know, you did, you, you were in, you, you uh, were doing from the... A te- I did a fair amount from, 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 you know, the passenger seat no, of the test drive. No, you were doing Gaudium et Spes and stuff, which yeah, you are the true. known expert on in this podcast. I am and, something of a Gaudium et Spes expert on this podcast. Yeah. Um, anyway, it is, I think, well, first of all, you saw a lot of people saying, well, of course the Pope thinks there's no such thing as just war, because there's a footnote in Fratelli Tutti in which he says that we no longer use um, Augustine's just war theory. And, you know, aha, I found a footnote in a papal encyclical. Aren't I clever? And it's like, well, no, not particularly. Yes, there is a passage in Fratelli Tutti where he's talking about war. And and there's a footnote in which he, he does seem to say we no longer use Augustine's theory of just war. Um, but the problem is people who, who tended to make much of that initially, at least from what I could see, were just basically control effing Fratelli Tutti. And, Which is and not to actually, say searching it. Yes, uh, uh, for keywords and not actually reading the thing. Um, but there's also a whole section in forgiveness in Fratelli Tutti in which he talks about, you know, uh, forgiveness doesn't mean if you're the victim of a crime or you're the victim of violent oppression that you just lay down and take the violent oppression and that other people are obliged to sort of watch you be steamrolled. On the contrary, you have to resist these things. And everyone, I, in fact, I'll just, let's let's see what the Pope actually said, because I think it's important, because people have this habit of sort of, you know, suggesting that Pope Francis doesn't ever have anything intelligent to say on these things and only gives one side, and I don't think it's true. Um, on the contrary, he said, True love for an oppressor means seeking ways to make him cease his oppression. It means stripping him of a power he does not know how to use, and that diminishes his own humanity and that of others. Forgiveness does not entail allowing oppressors to keep trampling on their own dignity and that of others, or letting criminals continue their wrongdoing. 
So I think if we're discussing this in the context of, for example, Ukraine and whether the Pope's comments in this conversation with Kirill could be interpreted to mean that it's not possible for the Ukrainians to wage a just war in their own defense, the answer is clearly no. That's not what's in the Pope's mind, and it's not what's in his writings on the resisting of violent oppression. Um, he seems to have fairly clear view on that. But if you read what Pope Francis says in Fratelli Tutti about um, international institutions, um, due process, law, things like that, and then you read what the Catechism says on just war, um, and what JP2 has said on just war at, at other points in the 21st century, um, you come, I think, fairly clearly to understanding, as you pointed out um, in Gaudium Spes, that the church's understanding of just war, and indeed this is why I was reading Augustine yesterday, um, is that Augustine's theory of just war basically takes as its premise, well, we're always going to have wars, that warfare is a normal, inevitable part of daily life for kingdoms and empires and nations, that nations go to war. That's what they do. It's just part of the world. And that was certainly true at the time he was writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the post-war era of a globalized international order with things like the United Nations, the International Criminal Court, things like that. Um, The thinking of the popes has been very much that, well, so long as there is not a sufficient international order to provide for the redressing of grievances and injustices between nations, there is this thing called just war, which is possible in these following criteria. But what Francis seems to have done is said, we are now at the point where war is always criminal. That to make war, to wage war, is a criminal action because we have the international law and structures and bodies like the United Nations that allow the vindication of rights and grievances and the addressing of you know problems between nation states in a proper forum. And so not to use that is a criminal action. And so basically what I think is the right way of reading what he was saying in his rhetorical way uh, to Patriarch Kirill is that basically... Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, is is not to be understood as certainly not a just war, not even an unjust war, but a criminal action, um, one which there can be just resistance to and one which there can you know be proper policing action by the international community to stop. That at least is, I think, the most coherent reading of not just what the Pope said this week, what he's written in Fratelli Tutti with what JP is, JP2 has said with what... So in no way the mitigating ca- the right of defense of a nation, in fact, you Ooh. know, the, the unbalance the Pope's... Um, Magisterium on the subject has, has affirmed, drawing from you know, drawing from the yeah. Church of Magisterium has affirmed well, and the let's right be of a nation to defend itself. Yeah, Pope Francis is not some sort of hippy dippy peacenik. This is the Pope who you know told journalists on a plane once, "Look, if you insult a guy's mother, you should expect a punch in the face, and you've right. got it coming." I mean, mm-hmm. Pope Francis is not uh, is not a flower child, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad I'm glad we clarified that. Ed, today is, as you know, the uh, uh, according. <laughs> According to the Edwardian calendar, the uh, Solemnity of St. Joseph observed. And uh, in light of that, um, having discussed uh, all the travails of the world, I wonder if you are ready to play a Josephite game of sorts. Is this a game where we just live together as brother and sister? <laughs> oh, I, I, I lobbed that one right over the plate for you, didn't you I? You did. No, this is not a game where we just live together as a brother and sister. Um <sighs> Uh, no, 
this is not that. Um, this is a game of uh, of uh, that we are going to call Name That Joseph. And this may, in fact, be the game that we played last year for the Solemnity of St. Joseph. We either played Name That Joseph or Name That City Called St. Joseph. I, we played another Josephy game. Do you recall that? <clears throat> I dimly recall it. I think that one was to do with geography, but that's all I can remember. I think that's right. I have for you five Josephs. Okay. And um, we are going to see, Ed, uh, I, I'm going to give you some descriptions of these Josephs, and you can ask a question or two, but then you're going to have to tell me which Joseph this is. The name of the game, we're kind of making this up on the fly, but the name of the game is going to be called Which Joseph Am I? So I will be the Joseph uh, uh, in, in question and uh, read, tell you a little bit about myself, and then you will, uh, you will uh, ask a couple of questions and then um, uh, make your guess. Does that make sense? I like it. Let's play a let's play a, um, a practice round, shall we? Please. Okay. So this practice round of which Joe am I uh, will go like this: um, I, Joseph, am a real American hero. Which Joe am I? You are GI Joe. GI Joe. Well done. Correct. Of course, they won't be that easy, but you've gotten the feel of the thing, haven't you? I have, and also we got to reference GI Joe, which is the superlative cartoon. A real American hero. I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I'll take your word for it. It was the best of the 1980s. G.I. Yeah, Joe, Transformers, and Thundercats were Thundercats for sure. Okay, amazing. Um, I, Joseph, a friend and mentor of Mozart and a tutor of Beethoven. I am an Austrian Joseph, the father of the string quartet. Which Joseph am I? A friend oh. and mentor of Mozart, a tutor of Beethoven, an Austrian Joseph, and the father of the string quartet. Which Joseph am I? Oh, I feel bad about this because I should know this. Not Salieri, because you said friend of Mozart. Um, the answer, I'm going to give you a hint here. The answer here might be surprising. You're just showing. You're, you're, you're only going to, but the more hints you give me, you're only going to make clearer my ignorance. You're close. The answer, Ed, is just around the corner out of sight because it's Haydn. Haydn. Joseph Haydn. You were close. Bollocks. Well done. Well, listen, you got the G.I. Joe, so you got the practice round. That was only, you were just getting warmed up. Now you really know how the game plays, so you could still go four for five. I could. And I would just like to say you wanted to play, when we did the planning for this episode, you wanted to play this game. I do, but I was thinking to myself after I said this, like, why do I do this? Because every time JD makes the game, I I end up feeling, I'm un, I'm incapable of taking this in good part. I, I, I always come up with, like, why didn't I know that? Yeah, but it was, it's just around the corner because it's hiding. Wasn't that clever? Yeah, that's that was very clever. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Joe, Sports Illustrated's 1980, or excuse me. Hi, I'm Joe, Sports Illustrated's 1990 Sportsman of the Year. This Joe, Ed, was an all-state basketball player in Pennsylvania and was offered a full scholarship to play basketball at North Carolina State. He was also a pretty decent high school football player. That would be, wait. Oh, Joe, uh, this Joe was 1990 Sportsman of the Year, an All-State uh, basketball player in Pennsylvania, and offered a full scholarship to play basketball at North Carolina State. He was also a pretty decent high school football player. I think he ended up actually a member of the Fighting Irish. Is it Joe Theismann? Close. You were close. You were in the right. You saw what I was doing there, but it was Joe Montana. Joe Montana was... He'd already been in the league by then. Was he 1990? I... Yeah, it was the 1990 Sportsman Leader. That's what I'm saying. Oh, oh, professional sportsman. I thought you were doing collegiate. Okay, no, no, cool. No, no, no. Got it? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to give you half a point because you weren't too sure how it was working. Well, no, I mean, I'm, I don't I don't deserve the point, J.D. The bottom line is I got the answer wrong, and I'm man enough to admit that. But, Ed, you still can um, 
you still can you still can stay above 500. That's possible. I mean, you're going to have to get the rest of them right. The odds aren't great at this point, but I'm willing to take my beating like a man. And again, you wanted to play this game. I did. I asked for this, JD. If that's what you want me to say, I'll say it. All out right. Loud. Are you ready? I for asked for one? this. Yes. <laughs> Hello. Uh, this Joseph recalls that when he was ordained a priest in 1951, he heard a lark chirp or thrill, more accurately. Uh, inside the cathedral church where he was ordained priest, uh, he was widely hailed during Second Vatican Council as an influential liberal theologian. This is Joseph Ratzinger. Joseph Ratzinger, although I realize that accent went all over Europe. It, it was it was confusing for a moment there. <laughs> yes, as well it should have been. That was a little uh, camp, too. I'm not going to yeah, deny. Yeah, sure. Oh, oh, to be sure. But that was, uh, that was a terrible and campy accent. And nevertheless, you persisted, and uh, you got it. Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. Famous in 1951. Do you know that story about him hearing the lark trill? Um, what he says when the hands were when hands were laid upon him in the sacred. No, I, I was unaware of that. And that's very it's very Ratzingerian, isn't it? Like in a lovely sense. It is. Yeah, and then um, and then uh, of course you know that he was widely regarded as a somewhat progressive theologian at the Second Vatican Council until dangerous um, liberal. Yeah, until the uh, the goal. Not only did the goalpost shift, I would say the the field shifted. Yes. Uh, after the council, and uh, he, he no longer enjoyed that reputation. No, there was a while there when, when he was buddies with Hans Kung, where That's he right. was considered the lib of the two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. Okay, this Joseph, I'm not going to try to do his accent. This Joseph lost in a lot casting exercise. Cat, lots were cast, but not for him. It was undertaken to decide who would succeed Judas, Judas uh, the betrayer, among the apostles of Jesus Christ. Oh, I only know who won. <laughs> who won? Oh, uh, this is, didn't Matthias win? Matthias won. That's right. Who lost to Matthias is the question in a game Joseph? of casting lots. Joseph. <laughs> Just right. go with Joseph. And what's and what's the typical? You can get you can get kind of close on this one because if you get his middle name, so to his speak, cognomen. Do I need to, like his cognomen? I'm going to go with Joseph the Unlucky. That no, was what he was um, known as. If, yes, that is what he was known as around Joseph the OTB. Sneak Eyes. But that's if you what can happened. get his middle name, so to speak, I'm going to give you half a point. And uh, and uh, no, what they said afterward is. Blessed are you, Joseph. Or, no, excuse me. What they said after he lost is, unlucky are you, Joseph. I'm making another uh, allusion there for you. Oh, are you? Um, uh, so, any any guess Robert, on his middle I, name? Uh, uh, oh, you were close. You're really close. Um, I'm going to give you half a point. Every you say you're really close, I wonder if my microphone's working. I... Joseph Barsabas. Ah, unlucky are you, Joseph Barsabas? That is that is a real name. They, that is his name. Mm-hmm. That is his name. But you can still uh, you can still. I think of him as Joey Snake Eyes. <laughs> what is? I mean, do you know anything about this? This would be a good pillar explainer. What is the casting of lots? I just assumed it's. I've seen pictures of lots, and they are. I mean, they're like die. Only they're like these... die. Okay, I thought it was like drawing straws. Honestly. No, I, they're like die, but they're not perfectly square, and they're different shapes. And you know, it's it's kind of at least the pictures I've seen is it's somewhere between dice and jacks. Okay, you know the the practice of casting lots in order to determine the will of God. It's called claromancy. Uh I didn't know that. I, I used to know it. the word for the the attempting to discern the will of the gods by the staring of freshly vivisected chicken guts oh, there's a word for sure. that mm-hmm. which i like to use maybe i'll use that in my newsletter tomorrow in some way yeah poultry and nancy no i don't think that's it come on let it be <laughs> okay we, well I, th- we, we use the correct term i won't say testify and i won't say poultry nancy 
you are going to finish strong. Okay. I promise you that. Ed, this Joseph is the son of a forklift operator who featured at age 10 on a little variety show called Star Time Kids. It's Star Time Kids, da-da-da-da. He worked as a barber until the release of his 1968 debut album, Little Joe Sure Can Sing. Which Joe am I? The son of a New Jersey forklift operator. Actually, his mom was a barber. Is this- at age 10, he featured on a reality show called Star Time Kids. He was working as a barber until he released his 1968 debut album, Little Joe Sure Can Sing. Uh, Jersey... 1960. Uh, I have no idea. He was, um, I mean, he was not, he was a, he is actually living, uh, but I mean, not a bad guy at all. You could even say a good fellow. And now I'm thinking of mob movies, but he, yeah, he was something of a good fellow. But he, he, Played music? He did. Um, he was also... I, I kind of, Joey you know, I'm from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. And, you know, he was kind of friends. Uh, you knew I was from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey, right? Yes. And he's not from the same town as me. But I think that he was friends with my cousin. Did you know my cousin? Did I ever introduce my cousin, Vinny? You know him? Joe Pesci? Joe Pesci. You got it. Finish strong. Ed Condon, which Joe am I? You are going to have one heck of a no celebrity, kidding. my Joe friend. Joe Pesci put, a, put a, an album out in 1960? Joe Pesci has recorded three studio albums. Little Joe Shore Can Sing. Vincent LaGuardia Gambino's Gambini Sings Just For You. Okay, uh, that I would have... And Pesci I, Still Singing. That's, that's fascinating. So Vincent LaGuardia Gambini, of course, is the name of Pesci's character in My Cousin Vinny. You know, they tried to give him a sitcom in the 80s, I think. Oh, didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, they gave Joe Pesci, like, he only did a pilot in a couple episodes. But it was, the premise was, I think he was like a New York City cop or something. He becomes a private eye in L.A. And, like, you can you can watch on YouTube the the opening credits of this show. And it's it's wild. I mean, because it's, it's everything you want in the 1980s pilot credits with Joe Pesci as private called, eye. How, it was called Half Nelson. There it is. Yeah, That's it was it. called Half Nelson. Huh, we could, how, we, maybe maybe you can find a way for the for the music to Half Nelson being our outro music. Oh, I was going to use Haydn's Surprise Symphony because I was super proud of my little hint there when I said you, it's going to be a surprise. You had great punnage going. I'm well impressed. <laughs> you had great punnage going. All right. Well, Ed, a uh, blessed solemnity to you, a blessed solemnity to you, dear listeners. If you'd like to celebrate the solemnity of St. Joseph in style, consider subscribing to the Pillar Podcast where we need your money. Just going to put it out there. <laughs> The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar Co-Founder, and all-around good sport, Ed. Didn't know about Joe Pesci. I don't know if he's ever seen Goodfellas Condon. We'll see you next Rest week. Rest in peace, Scott Hall. <laughs>